Out of the ruins and rubble Out of the smoke Out of a night of struggle Can we see a ray of hope One pale thin ray Reaching for the day We can bear a beautiful setting Yes we can Hello and welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, March 29th, in the middle of a disaster. <laughs> My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Good morning. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's also the founder and editor of castalbumreviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You could see his photography work at filespotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Hi, everybody. Good morning. So how are the two of you holding up? Uh, Hold up in your apartments and, uh, you know, just wandering out for various exercise and food? Yeah, basically. That's it. Sure, of course. Um, but my apartment's never been neater. Not that it's, <laughs> but it's never been neater. <laughs> it's all a sliding scale, isn't it? Oh, it sure is. <laughs> I'd like to say that my office is neater, but uh-huh. it is not. As I look around, <laughs> there's still time, James. There's still times. <laughs> so, uh, have you guys uh, been able to watch anything good on television? Oh, I don't know about good, but um, <laughs> but just because um, I, I I was at uh, my girlfriend's house and we turned on the TV, and um, there was the movie of Mame on uh, Turner Classics, <laughs> and um, so we came in just before the big Mame number, so we thought we'd watch that, and we stayed uh, right through um, Gucci's song. And, um, yeah, yeah, it's funny. I, of course the movie's not good at all. And, um, but it's amazing how many times I go to watch it. I think I've seen it about eight times, um, including during, um, its second run, uh, in movie theaters back in, in the seventies. But, um, you know, what I realized too, was the fact that in that big production number, uh, MAME, the title song, there are so many people and so many horses and all that kind of stuff. It just is overwhelming. And, you know, I think really uh, Broadway is just the right size for production numbers. Um, when you add so many people and so many animals and all this kind of stuff, it, it really does take away from the number because you have so many people who are anonymous. Now, granted, an ensemble is anonymous, too. Um, in the strict sense, but but still, there's something about the fact that you you can, if you want, scan everybody's face and see what everybody is um, expressing. Well, in the movie, you just can't do it. It's just it's just too much. So, um, I really do once again realize that musicals really are best on stage and rarely on film, unless you do it uh, radically different, um, a la Bob Fosse and Cabaret. And when you think about it. 
and I did. <laughs> um, cabaret works partly because the cabaret isn't that big, um, and you know, and yeah. um, you know, and you, mo- the the numbers aren't that big either because there are only so many people mm. who stand on the stage. Mm. So I, I I think there may be something there. Um, I Michael, I saw your um, big um, discussion on all that chat about the movie. Um, Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, and uh, somebody, not you, um, said uh, that uh, Vera Childs looked um, as she was dressed as if she were an uh, orthodox priest and and wasn't buzzy. (laughs) And there's something to be said for that. You know, and I have to say that way back in the 60s, when I was uh, working in a hotel, working my way through college, um, the movie of the Thomas Crown Affair was being filmed in Boston and everybody stayed except Faye Dunaway who wouldn't deign to stay at our hotel, but everybody else stayed at the hotel, including Steve McQueen and including Theodora Van Runkel who wound up doing the costumes from Maine. And mm. I have to say she was so charming and I adored her and she was funny and witty. And I loved her daughter, Felicity, um, who was about 13 years old. Then she was both, they spent a lot of time at the desk talking to us. They really um, enjoyed um, being with us and all that. And I wish I could say I liked her costumes, but I always felt they were over the top. And this is a prime example of that. Mm. It really is a prime example um, of over the top. But um, what's also interesting is in Bosom Buddies, um, Herman added some new lyrics. And some of the lyrics involve um, Benchley and Wolcott. <laughs> yes. And it's so amazing to think that he would add those for a movie that was going to go out to um, markets where – uh, Alexander Wolcott and Robert Benchley meant nothing. I could see those in the stage show back in 1966. Those names would still be known back then. But in the 70s for general consumption, it's amazing to me that he added those lyrics. So, um, so here I am talking about <laughs> two specific numbers and name in the costumes, and I didn't even see the whole thing. You know, so um, <laughs> it, it seems like there's always plenty to criticize in the movie of Maine, and I haven't even started on Lucille Ball. Okay, enough said. Well, those are all very good points. I watched, um, <clears throat> of all things, I mean, I've been looking at various things with so much time, but um, I watched Pearly, uh, the 1981 oh. TV mm-hmm. version. I think it was some, for, done for some early uh, you know, pay-per-view, some kind of pay-per-view thing. Ironically, or- I, I saw it live. I was invited to that. Um, it was done at Lehman College uh, up in the Bronx. And um, I think it was Showtime, but I'm not sure. Anyway. Oh, yeah, maybe. Yeah, I believe our friend Kevin McInerney said he was uh, he did press for it. Oh, really? Uh-huh. Maybe that's why you were there. But uh, anyway, um it's quite it was so interesting to see because I, I you know, I like Pearly. I had not uh, seen the video since the first time it aired on regular TV somehow. Or maybe I think I maybe it was released on home video not long after um, the showtime or whatever it was. And then I have the, the album, but I haven't listened to that in years. Uh, and so it was really interesting to revisit it. And my takeaway was. Um, Interesting. My takeaway is that the score overall is really quite excellent by Geld and Udell. Um, maybe one or two songs that are, you know, just kind of passable, not great, but s- several really, really good ones and just overall amazing. That the, the, the opening number is famously a, just a roof raiser. Uh, it's really one of the greatest, I think, maybe in Broadway history. Uh, 
But the book, uh, which is, I think, follows very, very closely the original play by Ossie Davis. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, to me, it has aged incredibly poorly. Uh, and also, it seemed endless. I, <laughs> I, I think that this, um, I think that the whole video was, I think it was over two and a half hours long. It certainly seemed like it. I, I, I it just kept waiting for it to go to the next song, but then there would be all these scenes in it and, <laughs> and uh, a lot of very, a lot of material that would be considered, I would say very questionable nowadays in terms of uh, characterizations and stereotypes and things like that. So I, uh, I don't remember what my reaction was when encores did ah. um, Pearly, but you know what? I'll I'll bet anything that they probably cut a oh, lot of sure. It of course, yeah. they always do anyway. But yeah, this would be a good time to do it. Um, I was at the final preview of Pearly way back in 1970, <clears throat> and it was very interesting. The playbill did not have "I Got Love" in it. That was added so late that it wasn't even in the playbill. And of course, we were all very surprised at how uh, magnificent it was when it uh, certainly uh, came out. But what I remember most about that taping um, of Pearlie was the fact that when Sherman Hemsley came on, uh, made his first entrance, uh-huh. uh, he got terrific applause because by that point he was a star thanks to that TV show called The Jeffersons. But um, way back in 1970, he just walked on stage and, of course, nothing happened. Um, people were interested in seeing what he had to say, but they certainly didn't give him entrance applause. So, um, again, proof that uh, if you have a TV series, you really uh, you really do very well. I remember B.B. Newworth saying to me that um, – one of the reasons she went to California to be on TV shows is so she could get starring roles in Broadway musicals. Uh, because even after she got her Tony for Sweet Charity, the offers were not coming. And, um, and that's why she wanted to uh, establish herself, knowing that that would do it uh, very quickly. So, so anyway, it happened to Sherman. I had forgotten that the show was that long ago, 1970, but you're absolutely right. The, uh, the video is listed on um, IMDb as 1981. Uh, I, I think th- that means that that's when it was originally released. So uh, was it your memory that that version you saw at Lehman College was years after the original? Oh, what I do remember more than anything else is while we were driving out there, and ironically enough, I was with Les Moonves, who would certainly have a big wow. career later, um, uh-huh. <clears throat> was that we had just learned that Harry Chapin had died. Oh. Um, it happened that day. Whatever that day was, was the day they taped Pearly. Oh, wow. Oh, I, I remember wow. that uh, very vividly. Uh, so, yeah, it sure was. So Interesting. So um, have either one of you taken advantage of Broadway HD's offer for uh, a free uh, live watch party of uh, Oklahoma starring Hugh Jackman? Well, uh, at the risk of sounding um, oh so grand, I will say that um, most everything that they're showing lives in my house. So, um, Ah. you know, know, so. uh, That is a wonderful thing they're doing. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. God love people for doing this. And it's really quite wonderful that um, they're making it so readily available. uh, And Uh, it's, it's only available on Broadway HD through today, which is Sunday, the 29th, March 29th, for free. I'll have a link to that in the show notes if you get to us during that. But interesting, on Broadway HD, uh, they have um, a section here for theater ticket holders. The American Conservatory Theater, ACT, and Berkeley Rep have a section on Broadway HD uh, where it seems like if you have tickets to those shows, you can see 
uh, various different things through Broadway HD as part of your ticket thing, which I think is is very interesting. But uh, certainly, if you are a big fan of uh, of Broadway and theater. Um, and we're stuck in the house, as all of us are right now, Broadway HD might be uh, the thing to take you to the rescue. Mm. So uh, that's really interesting. Also, uh, because of what's happening in the news, we have had a number of reports of people across the Broadway community who have uh, been sickened. Uh, let's start with the the uh, the good news, which uh, Danny Burstein posted on Facebook that mm. he is at finally at home and he has recovered from the COVID virus, which is very exciting. Yes, um, yeah, we saw. Um, mm. Yeah, Moulin Rouge, the cast and crew were all tested. A few of them uh, seem to have come down with COVID virus, and and of course. Uh, at, Danny's wife, uh, Rebecca, going through health problems, we, just, we all got very nervous about yes. uh, both Danny and Rebecca uh, mm. being at risk there. Um, and then on the sadder side, we had uh, the notice this week that Terrence McNally passed away um, from complications due to the coronavirus. <laughs> and uh, uh, Michael, you had sent along a uh, video from... Um, uh, from the Tribeca Film Festival, where Terrence talked about every act of life. I mean, what do you have to say about Terrence? Oh, well, that video, um, it's, it was a Q&A uh, that was done after a screening of, of the film. I'm not sure exactly where. Uh, it's probably in the notes. And it's an amazing Q&A because it's led by Frank Rich. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the participants include uh, Terrence, Nathan Lane, and F. Murray Abraham. So... Uh, Frank Rich makes the joke about two Roy Cohns being present. Um, <laughs> Tyne Daly is there, Joe Mantello, and several other amazing people. This was done, um, I checked the date, it was done almost exactly two years ago, like two years and one week ago, uh, this Q&A was filmed. And um, I just started to watch just the beginning of it to, you know, to check the quality of it. This is courtesy of our friend Michael Stever who worked uh, as, a, I believe, an assistant cinematographer on the documentary, and then he filmed this, this Q&A. But, um, but, you know, I mean, it's sad enough under the circumstances, but, uh, but the beginning was incredibly sad because Frank Rich starts out by saying how uh, Terrence is such a survivor, mm-hmm. how he survived, uh, mm-hmm. among other things, cancer, and mm. alcoholism mm-hmm. and then of course now we know what you know what happened with covid and it's it's just so tragic that mm. it's all we can do is honor the artistry of people like that and and mourn and then carry on as you know as as we can tom jones the um the writer, not the uh, singer, uh, the, the um, book writer, lyricist uh, of the Fantastics and many other shows, um, <clears throat> once wrote a song called um, Mr. Off-Broadway, um, talking about the fact that he's Mr. Off-Broadway. It, it was a, a funny piece of special material. But I do think Terrence McNally um, has a chance to uh, be Mr. Off-Broadway because even though he had about 
seriously more than two dozen Broadway shows. <laughs> he had more off-Broadway shows. Um, productions, I should say. I, I don't mean to say that he, he wrote that many plays, but nevertheless, um, there were more off-Broadway credits than Broadway credits. And uh, But I'll tell you, the thing that always comes back to me, and I... I, I may have told this story before, but um, I was doing a panel discussion with him in the cast of um, Love, Valor, Compassion, and I brought up in Things That Go Bump in the Night. That was his first play from scratch that was produced on Broadway. He had done uh, work on um, The Lady of the Camellias back in 1963, but um, that was an adaptation. But his first real Broadway effort was in Things That Go Bump in the Night, starring Eileen Hackett. So this is pretty good. You know, he's got, he's got a big star, a, a wonderful actress in it. And the play opened on a Monday night, and uh, there were six newspapers at that time. I wish they were now, but they're not. Um, and um, all six critics talked about the fact that this is the worst thing that ever happened on Broadway. I mean, it was just um, quite, quite a, a terrible thing. So what happened was, um, as Terrence explained, um, though I knew what had happened, uh, he, he he told the story that the next day he went to the producer's office and expected to hear we closed last night, you know, because um, virtually every Broadway show has a closing notice up when they open, just in case things get really terrible, they can close um, immediately or at the end of the week. So he we went there expecting to hear the worst, and um, the... Uh, producer said, well, you know, we didn't spend all our money. Now, I'm guessing that it was something like, uh, in those days, it cost about $100,000 to put on a play. So I'm guessing it was something like 85000 that they spent. And this is a guess now. But anyway, um, he said, you know, we got some money. And I always wondered, I always wondered if, if you made tickets cheap enough, would people come? So I'm going to make all tickets a dollar. And let's see if people come. <laughs> So um, they did that and they got it out on the radio and uh, there were evening editions of papers in those days that all tickets were going to be a dollar. Now understand that tickets in those days for a play, the best seats, premium seats were $6.90. So this is like an 84% discount. And about 700 people showed up that, that Tuesday night and they said, whoa, you know, maybe this. And the, for the rest of the week, they sold out, proving that if you make it, <laughs> not expensive. People will come. So um, they didn't quite make expenses, but they still had money left over. And they thought, all right, let's try it a second week. Let's see what happens. And, you know, let's see if $2 on Fridays and Saturdays will make it. <laughs> and they still sold out. Now, here's the point. Terrence McNally, when I brought this story up, said, and, you know, I would not be the playwright I am today if that hadn't happened. Because <laughs> I went to every one of those performances and I saw that in every instance, I saw them when I had them, when I had them interested. Mm -hmm. I saw them when I lost them. It was always at the same point. I saw when they were reacting like I did something pretentious. And he said, really, it was such a lesson in playwriting. You don't learn anything from empty houses, but you'll learn quite a bit from full houses. Mm -hmm. And when people do the same thing for 15 performances, react the same way, you know that they're not wrong. You know, you, you, oh, you can rationalize right. a bad audience. Oh, it was a bad house tonight. Yes, oh, they yes. had dinners. Uh, they were they were sleepy. Oh, they sat in their hands. Yeah. But when 15 audiences tell you the same thing, you know, it's true. And he says it really influenced tremendously how we uh, wrote from there on in. And, you know, I have to say that to me, he wrote one of the funniest lines of all time in his play. It's only a play. 
uh, which did get a Broadway revival a few years ago. It, it should have gotten a Broadway production way back in the late 70s when it was called Broadway Broadway, <laughs> and it closed in Philadelphia. But anyway, um, this is a story about the opening night of a play. Many of you uh, saw the uh, Broadway production in which Nathan Lane starred. And um, But anyway, it's the opening night of a play, and it starts with um, Nathan Lane on the phone up in a room where nobody is. It's in, it's in the producer's townhouse, and giving all the details about how terrible the show and all I could think was how many times I've been on those phone calls either making them uh, to friends in New York when I was living in Boston you know telling about what happened what just opened out of town you know and and then you know that type of thing you know without <laughs> rage about how horrible or, or rapes um, but anyway I mean I had to laugh at that uh, water log uh, that happened while he's on the phone. But anyway, everybody's waiting for the TV reviews because there were a lot of TV reviews in those days and they're switching channels, switching channels. And I think it's just fabulous when they're switching channels and you hear one news reporter say, Barbara Streisand was found and they click, you know, to another channel because <laughs> they're only interested <laughs> in the play. You know, what, what the review of the play is going to be. And wait a, minute, wait a minute, Barbara Streisand was found what? You know, <laughs> I mean, the obvious word is dead, but I mean, yeah, it is so terrific to show how uh, centered these people are on, on having to know uh, what their play is and, and don't care about what else is going on in the rest of the world. <laughs> so it's one of my favorite lines of all time. You know, um, I, 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 I had dinner with him. Um, sorry, lunch, actually, it was um, not that long ago. I would say within the last year. And I meant to ask him a few questions here and there about his shows. Hmm. And it was so sad, you know, oh, well, the next time. Right. And just didn't get around to it. Um, so, so yes, we will miss him um, because he was such a good natured guy too. He really was. Yeah. And um, I, that's what was so nice. I, 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 I was, I dealt with him uh, when I was drama desk president because um, both um, masterclass and um, love, valor, compassion won uh, the best plays. So we, we had a lot of interaction way back then. And um, he was just so nice. And I didn't see him for years afterwards. And it was so nice how he remembered me and, and came up with uh, incidents that happened at both of those um, nights. And um, so he really had a very good memory, too. Uh, so I'm sorry, needless to say, that he's not with us anymore. And apropos to that, what you were just talking about, I forgot to mention that in the Q&A video with Frank Rich and the panel that I mentioned, um, when, <laughs> when Frank... Uh, mentions the things that Terrence has survived and and the two I remember is he says cancer and alcoholism and then and then Terrence says something like and I thought you were going to say the critics uh -huh. uh, and I think uh -huh. maybe he even says the New York Times critics uh -huh. Uh -huh. and then Frank says something like uh, well I hope you, something like oh, I hope you're not referring to anything I wrote and and uh Terrence says something like, no, I, the thing I'm thinking about happened long before you were there. Mm -hmm. So he was almost undoubtedly talking about and things that go bump in mm -hmm. the night. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. All right. So we, um, yeah, so it's, we're, we're, we're all just, it's surreal. This, the, what's happening in the last couple of weeks is surreal to us. And, uh, the passing of Terrence McNally is just uh, beyond comprehension for, uh, for at least for me. Um, the, the way it happened was so sad. Yeah, I mean, you know, if 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 it was just an ordinary, you should pardon the expression, illness. You know, sure. Uh, you right. know, we. But this seemed like 
it was um, a blow, a, bl a blow out of the blue, and um, it, it was just. They always talk about the fact that um, when a celebrity um, dies, it really um, gives much more awareness to the uh, to the illness, um, such as when Rock Hudson uh, died of AIDS, um, that type of thing. And I'm sorry, the Terrence McNally had to be. You should pardon the expression, the poster boy for this type of thing. So. Let's uh, move on to the rest of our show. Uh, Peter, we have not yet talked about our trivia answer for last week, so can you give uh -huh. us that? Yes, indeed. Um, I, what was really interesting with the trivia question last week was the fact that um, while Brigadude finished third and Ingrid Gammon in second, Tony Janicki finished first again, but I want to squelch what people have been saying lately about him. <laughs> I, I want to I make this very clear that he's so good at this that the Tonys were named after him. No, no, that's not true. <laughs> Perhaps they deserve to be, but they weren't. Okay, so the question was, one of Stephen Sondheim's most famous lyrics in a show for which he only wrote lyrics. Now, that was a very nice thing of me because, you know, there were 15... Yeah. Mm -hmm. musicals, but now I <laughs> narrowed it to three, uh, contains two lines that became the title of a 1970s Supper Club review that has received both American and British cast albums. Its title song was recorded by one of our most famous recording artists. What are the two lines in the show? And the answer is starting here, starting now, which comes in Everything's Coming Up Roses, starting here, starting now. Um, so that's the answer. And starting here, starting now was a Mulpey and Shire review that was at a place called Barbara Ann on 46th Street. doesn't exist anymore. But uh, that's where it started. And uh, it did get both uh, American and British cast albums. Many of us who went to Barbara Ann to see starting here, starting now, recognized the uh, title as soon as we heard it, um, even before we got into the club, because Barbara Streisand recorded the song, I think, on her fourth album. I think it was the last song on the first side in those days when we had first sides. But uh, anyway, that's the answer to the question from last week. All right. Why don't you uh, give us the question for this week? Okay. Of all the major Broadway songwriters, which one had the highest percentage when it came to working on musicals set in France? <laughs> A true 40% of this songwriter's musicals have a French setting. I have a guess. I'll share it with you after we stop recording. Okay. Um, <laughs> but um, I have to say um, the key words are when it came to working on musicals set in France. Oh, okay. Then I'm probably wrong. <laughs> <laughs> John Schwab, put your thinking cap on and uh, let us know at trivia at broadwayradio.com if you are on the right track. So, into our discussion expanded from last week. Last week, we're actually we're going to talk about our uh, March birthday babies. Uh, we mentioned briefly last week, uh, Stephen Sondheim, Andrew Lloyd Webber, Stephen Schwartz, and John Kander, uh, four greats of Broadway who have birthdays in March. We were going to actually talk about it last week, but our conversation with uh, Grover was so interesting that it uh, pushed into our our schedule there. So we thought we'd revisit it this week. And, of course, um, those four people have had such an enormous impact upon the Broadway stage um, and all of our lives in the last uh, 30, 40 years or so. 
So let's start off with uh, Stephen Sondheim. Peter, what are your thoughts on Mr. Sondheim? Well, um, what comes to mind very quickly uh, was the time that I interviewed him when Passion was running on Broadway, mm. and uh, it wasn't doing well. And um, anyway, Continental Airlines got in touch with me and said, listen, we want to do a thing with Stephen Sondheim indicating when you're in New York, uh, come and see um, Passion. So uh, he came in. He and you know, you know that he really, 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 really didn't want to do it. That he, he felt that you know, uh, you know, I, why should I have to do this? I mean, the show's really good. I and um, yeah, it's one of Tony. I mean, you know, I mean, what else do I have to do? Why do I have to be here? And um, I'm sure he felt that he was going to run to somebody who was going to say, you know, what came first, the music or the lyrics. And luckily, um, that wasn't <laughs> the case. Um, and I'll tell you, you know, he was, he was answer, answering questions in a professional way, but he only became enthusiastic when I said, you know, I remember in 1963 that uh, there was a commercial for Plymouth Cars that um, used the uh, melody of comedy tonight. Soon there'll be no room left in the showroom because people will be crowding in. And uh, and that made the difference uh, when he knew that uh, somebody knew that, that um, he wasn't going to get the uh, standard questions he's got, he had received since day one. So he was very nice after that. And he's been very nice to me since. Um, and but you know what? What I do want to say too is I always feel bad that he comes down so hard on "Do I Hear a Waltz," which I think is an excellent score um, by both people, and I think it's a very good show too. It it doesn't go in the direction you think it's going to. You think it's going to be a boy meets girl story. Um, this you should pardon the expression. The term is used in the show. Spinster uh, is um, finds love and she's going to live happily ever after. But she turns out to be quite a, a, an unpleasant person. And what we learn in the show is that she does come away from that vacation becoming a better person. We know she's going to be a better person when she gets back to the United States after she returns from Venice. And his work is excellent. And I understand why he feels so bad about it because he was treated badly. And I will never forget getting the album known as the Scrabble album. And um, I remember my wife at the time was driving in the car and I was opening it up. I couldn't wait to see what was on there. <laughs> and when I saw We're Going to Be All Right, a song from Do I Hear Wells, which is such a throwaway on the original cast album, I thought, why did they put this song? And it turned out to be the song of the year because we got the version that he originally wrote, which has um, a complete section musically that wasn't in the um, original cast album at all and lyrics that were just... Um, not to die for, but to live for. So, um, so I feel bad that uh, he does that. Um, being in the very first audience of company was really quite a thrilling experience uh, when it tried out in Boston when another hundred people was in the second act. And, um, and also it was just so amazing that people have talked about what a game changer company was, and it was. But the really interesting thing was, even though it was so different, and I've talked to Ken Bloom about this and other people, too, who agree with me entirely. There was something about the show that did make it seem like a Broadway musical business as usual in the best sense of the word. I don't mean anything negative about that. What I mean is it really flowed so beautifully and you it, it took you by surprise. You didn't even notice that it was so dynamically different from any other musical because it was so sure-footed. And um, it was really very exciting to uh, to see that the 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 ambition being so realized that it really did seem like um a, a terrific show and of course going to follies um the following year um in boston and seeing can that boy foxtrot um was really something because uh <laughs> what a huh. 
what lyrics and to hear that he was replacing it. And <laughs> um, my God, why would he replace that song? And of course, I'm still here, which I I always say is the greatest uh, song ever written out of town. Um, <laughs> even though, you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, it's a list song. You know, it's easy to write list songs. First song, no song, no song is easy to write, at least in the Broadway arena. But um, yes, it's a list song. I'll grant you that it is. However, notice there are two things in that list song that are really interesting. And that is um, first, you're another slow eyed vamp, then someone's mother, then your camp. I mean, Shakespeare needed seven ages to get through man and look at um, Sondheim <laughs> distilling it to three ages of actresses and uh, and someone's mother. What does that tell you about uh, her, her feeling about motherhood? Career obviously comes first to her. And I also like, I'm almost through my memoirs. Now, I'll grant you that people say memoirs, plural, sometimes when they mean memoir. I will grant you that. But one could think that Carlotta thinks her life is so significant that she's got to write more than one memoir. So um, as I've said before, when it came to um, A Little Night Music, every human being I ever knew who was interested in musicals from near and far was at that very first performance because after Company and Follies, who the hell could wait for a second performance? So uh, so anyway, I'll let Michael take it from here. But um, anyway, um, the, <laughs> the, the memories are just incredible um and um i i have seen every sondheim original cast show um with the exception of anyone can whistle for which i had a ticket but it closed too quickly um i had a ticket for june 3rd much too late for a show that closed on april 11th um but um i have seen every show for which he had written the score no i'm i'm i i wasn't there for either the original West Side Story or Gypsy. But, um, but after that, I've been there for most of them, and I'm oh so glad I have been. All right, Michael, what did you think? Well, I, let me say, first of all, I completely agree about Do I Hear a Waltz. I think we've discussed it before. Sure I think that have. show has its flaws, but nothing major, and I, I think it's really solid overall. I suspect the main reason... Uh, <clears throat> that it was not nearly as successful as some other shows is just because it's such a downbeat ending. Um, and maybe that, as I'm sure we've discussed, is one of the reasons why Follies initially was not a, was not really a hit. Um, now, of course, there are many other shows that are, are... West Side Story is not exactly uplifting at the end, and it's the the biggest hit classic in in broadway history but i guess that's a little different because it's um it ends in a, in a tragic way which is different from like a, just a sort of a downbeat ending with this uh you know about this woman who falls in love with this man while she's on vacation and then it doesn't work out because of her own character flaws and mm -hmm. culture clash and so they they part and and that's very different than uh, the tragedy, I think, of West Side Story. There can be catharsis, if that's the right word, in, in tragedy, like West Side Story, and also maybe a tiny hint of hope after the tragedy, but this is a little different. So I think that's, I suspect that that's the main reason why Do I Hear a Waltz was not a hit. But there's certainly, uh, and I also, I also would say that I think it's fair to say that whatever flaws in it are probably in the book and not in the music and lyrics. I think maybe there are a few moments where Arthur Lawrence was a little heavy-handed in showing us 
several instances of how mistrustful this Leona woman is and how one might even say neurotic. Um, but, uh, you know, but again, not nothing, nothing terribly damaging. And, and some of the songs, several of the songs are, are just phenomenal. I, I think many people would agree that the title song is one of the best things that Sondheim or Rogers wrote. Mm -hmm. And what I really, I've always, always loved the opening number be, uh, someone woke up because it's so uh, I, I would say, first of all, it's very atypical for probably both of those composers. When you think about it, uh, just to start with something like that, uh, that's just a sheer expression of joy, certainly atypical of Sondheim. Um, well, Rogers has a few examples of different types of songs that do that. But, uh, and here's this woman, and she's arrived in Venice, and she's just overwhelmed by the beauty of it, and she could not be happier. And you really need, I think, a very up, happy, joyous song like that to start a show like that that's going to become very dark, much darker and sadder as it goes along. So I think that that was a, a great way to start that show and i and peter alluded earlier to uh the reason for sondheim's negative feelings i i have always assumed and thought that it's just a case where the process was so unpleasant that he can't that even he can't really quite divorce um the uh the outcome from the process and and uh and look at it objectively, if it would be possible to do that. I, I think maybe that's very difficult for him to do that. But I think he should be prouder of it also, Peter. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I really do. Um, uh, Sondheim, the, the people we're going to discuss today, two of them are composer slash lyricists or dash lyricists, uh, Sondheim and, and Stephen Schwartz. And I've always thought, at the risk of stating the obvious that those people are just, they're just geniuses. Uh, if they're, if they're good, obviously, and they are, or we wouldn't be talking about them. Um, to have those two talents go together is amazing to me. It, to have either one of them at that level is amazing, but both is just like, uh, I mean, if you believe in God, <laughs> I would say, you know, two gifts, two incredible gifts from God. Um, and he, and and the other Stephen, they're just um, incredible when it comes to that. There are I could, of course, cite dozens of songs that are I that I especially love from Sondheim's canon. But uh, a couple of that I was thinking of were uh, one is "Pretty Women" from Sweeney Todd, because it's. Uh, an example of probably uh, an example of a type of song that's probably going to come up again in our discussion here today where it it's so beautiful in itself but it can work on a completely different level when taken out of context as when is in the show and so that gives it a depth that that many other songs doesn't have don't have uh i mean here's this if you sing it out of context it just sounds like a beautiful love song um and then you see it and it's, uh, oh, it's this guy is singing to distract someone whose throat he's about to slit. Oh, I see. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's kind of amazing. And, and a, a little specific thing about that song that, I, that just occurred to me is right before the song itself starts, 
there's that part before it um, uh, where Sweeney's singing to the judge and they have like a little musical dialogue together. And uh, the judge says um, um, that she, he refers to jo Joanna and she says she's pretty as a rosebud. And Sweeney says pretty as her mother. Mm. And and uh, the judge says, what? What's that? Mm. And in the back of that, you hear like this beat in the orchestra going bum, 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 bum. And you're like, oh, my God, <laughs> he's going to kill him right now. Uh, if you hadn't seen the show before. <laughs> and then it completely shifts <laughs> and that beat stops. And he goes, pretty women. <laughs> you know, so that I, is that is sheer genius. That is sheer genius. Another song I'd mention um, is In Buddy's Eyes from Follies, uh, has been analyzed uh, extensively by, by greater minds than me. But it, it's so wonderful because what, she's, what this character is saying in the lyrics um, is not <laughs> completely true. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and, the, and what she's saying that's true and what's not true is kind of reflected in the not only in the music, but also in the orchestrations and the brilliant Jonathan Tunick orchestrations. Um, so that's a, that's a moment of genius as well. And I was thinking that uh, a particularly very specifically brilliant moment is where she sings, um, uh, you know, she's trying to convince Ben and herself that she's happy with her life with Buddy in, where is it, Phoenix? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and she says, um, uh, you know, life is slow, but it seems exciting because Buddy's there. Gourmet cooking and letter writing and knowing Buddy's there and blah, blah, blah. And then she goes, um, and yes, and yes, I miss a lot living like a shut in. No, I haven't got cooks and cars and diamonds. Yes, my clothes are not Paris fashions, but in Buddy's eyes, I'm young, I'm beautiful, etc. Well, all right. You know, living without cooks and cars and diamonds and and paris fashions that's that's one thing that's a, that a lot of people live without and also it doesn't seem to me that that's even the kind of stuff that that woman would necessarily be interested in but that previous line yes i miss a lot living like a shut-in mm -hmm. well i mean living like a shut-in is a pretty bad thing. Mm -hmm. So well, we're all fact, doing it now, though. But anyway, right? Well, I'm, I I think that's that fact is something that has made me sensitive to it. Yeah. Sure, um, extra sensitive to it. Sure, um, but the fact that she conflates living like a shut-in with not having diamonds, you know, and and mm. furs and things, uh, is is a, a extremely brilliant little tiny specific. Uh, example of Sondheim's genius. I got to say, too, that uh, I don't know about you guys, but um, I don't think there's any Broadway songwriter that I quote as much uh, in casual conversation hmm. as, yeah. as Sondheim. Somebody the other day was talking about making a youthful mistake, and I, of course, responded with everybody has to go through stages like that, uh, which is from the girls uh, waiting around for the girls upstairs. Um, you know, Krupke, we got troubles of our own is something I often say when people <laughs> tell me about um, uh, something went bad. Uh, when I describe a good friendship, I often say no fits, no fights, no feuds, and no egos. And when uh, times when people go out of our lives, um, when people tell me that uh, they've lost a friend, I, I, I say, I, I just put this on Facebook the other day when somebody talked about losing a friend, and I said, 
I, I don't mean to be flip, but really, sometimes people leave you halfway through the wood, mm-hmm. and um, it really is true. Um, <laughs> you'll be swell. You'll be great. Yes, that much seems clear. Um, well, maybe next year. All those lines are um, from Sondheim, and they do pepper my conversation for better well, or worse. And one last thing for me is I, I think – I don't remember if we mentioned this last week, but some people have um, – been mentioning and even posting performances of uh, two Sondheim songs from Evening Primrose in uh, in the context of the current situation. I remember Sky and mm. Take Me to the World. Mm. Evening Primrose, of course, is about this society of people who live in a uh, in a department store, uh, and they don't go out. Uh, and there's this young girl who has never known the uh, the larger world the world outside and uh she encounters this fellow who has decided from the outside world who has decided to spend uh some time in the department store to retreat from the world but she begs him to uh well first of all she um oh i guess she i'm sorry so yeah i guess uh, i'm sorry i was a little mistaken she uh we are to think that she had been outside it when she was young, right? Mm-hmm. Because she's, and that's when, she, yes, of course, that's when she sings, I remember sky. Mm-hmm. And she, she goes through this list of beautiful things that she has dim memories of when she was presumably a little girl. Um, and then she sings, take me to the world about how she wants to get back to that. And, and they're both, both songs are just so touching and so beautiful in terms of the lyrics and the melody. And there's certainly, uh, extra touching and beautiful at this moment. I've always thought if there were a sequel to Guys and Dolls, Guys and Dolls 2, that Sarah Brown, who's abandoned by her husband, would sing a song called I Remember Sky. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so uh, next up, we have uh, Sir Andrew Lloyd Webber. Who, Lord. Uh, Lord. Lord. Not just Sir. Oh, how did so it was I a long that? time ago. So it was a yeah, long time. A little ago. more respect. Back during the uh, he he was sir. Back during aspects of love, he is now a lord. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, <laughs> uh, Angela Weber, what type of um, thoughts do you have about him, Peter? I've never met him, um, so I don't have any personal um, um, feelings uh, one way or the other, but. Um, I was certainly around when Jesus Christ Superstar was an album, um, uh, mm. two record set with a brown cover. And um, I have to say that I never saw the original production of Jesus Christ Superstar, which I have gotten mixed reports for <laughs> low these many uh, four decades plus. So um, I, but boy, what an exciting thing it was when that album came out. Um, it, it was fresh new music. It, it sounded theatrical uh certainly i don't know how to love him and um everything's all right um became major songs uh of of their time and but the rest of it was so exciting too and uh, you know working with tim rice uh certainly um was was so wonderful to to hear because 
you know, I, right away when, when Judas sings, and I've been your right-hand man all along, I mean, that was so galvanizing because we never think about that, that maybe one of the reasons Judas uh, did what he did has to do with um, his feeling that he was the favorite child, so to speak, and then wasn't. But of course, that's Tim Rice, and we are talking about Andrew Lloyd Webber, but the music is so wonderful. I think Heaven on Our Minds, uh, Their Minds is, is really such a magnificent uh, opening song, an unexpected one, too. But, um, and of course, he did write a song called Unexpected Song. But anyway, um, yeah, it all, people really seem to uh, resent the fact that his shows were running so long. Um, certainly, Cats um, overtook Chorus Line. There was a lot of resentment because of that, because Chorus Line was really beloved by virtually everyone, and, and Cats wasn't. And, um, and of course, Phantom Running Forever. Um, but, you know, people, of course, love to build up people as they're coming up and then they get to a certain point and then uh, they resent them for being successful. It's, it's odd how that happens in human nature, but it does happen in human nature. But um, so we have to really remember that this guy wrote so many beautiful songs. I mean, I remember when I specifically made a trip to England to see Phantom uh, during its opening um, month. And um, I, I still remember feeling so overwhelmed by um Prima Donna, which I think is really a glorious piece of music. And uh, all I ask of you, I mean, they're cliches now because, of course, they, they've never left us. Um, <laughs> Avita claimed she'd never leave us, but um, here we are with that. So, I mean, really magnificent. And a few weeks ago, I was listening to Avita, and I'll tell you, you know, it's still to me one of the greatest sequences of, um, of any musical that so many songs in the row um, tickle me so, so much. And what I'm talking about is in the second act, I am crazy for high flying a door followed by rainbow high followed by rainbow tour followed by the actress hasn't learned <laughs> her lines and, and the money kept rolling in and out. I mean, to me, that is one of the greatest sequences in all Broadway musical history that it, I, I love each one of those pieces. And after one of them is finished, it's such a treat to hear the next one. So, um, so yes, uh, while it's fun to bash Andrew Lloyd Webber for a number of reasons, uh, let's give the respect of somebody who really, really uh, did the work and, for that matter, you know, kept working in the theater. It would have been very easy for him to, uh, to go to Hollywood and um, underscore movies as he did. There was, there was a movie he did, um, uh, <sighs> A Gumshoe. I think it was called. Um, you know, he could have done a lot of other things. He could have stopped writing. He still wants to do it. And I think that's really quite wonderful. So um, this month is a good month to uh, really respect what he has done and not criticize him for being uber successful. Oh, Michael, what are your thoughts on Andrew Lloyd Webber? Just one little point. You said Broadway musical history. I guess we really should honored the fact or acknowledged the fact uh, or sure. stressed the fact that um, <laughs> that's fair <laughs> that he, yeah, you know, I mean, those, those uh, shows, well, actually let's see uh superstar was first done on Broadway, not in right. Broadway. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, but, but yes. Yeah. 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 Uh, <laughs> because British I invasion uh, was certainly named after him. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, there was, there had before that there had been Oliver, uh, which was a worldwide, you know, and Broadway hit. Uh, mm -hmm. I let's see. Was there any show uh, before that that was uh, the that boyfriend? Not, of course. You know, yeah, to that yeah. degree, right? But right. nobody expected shows to run as long as these did. 
Right. right. Um, I've said this before, but my friend Ken Cantor, who was in uh, Phantom for over 12 years, said when I was growing up, my fair lady's six year run seemed amazing. And look at this. I mean, I, I've been in this show twice as long as my fair lady ran and Hal Prince in his book, Contradiction saying, um, no, I don't think any show will ever run longer than Fiddler. And little did he know that he would direct the show. It would run four times as long as Fiddler. Right. I did, uh, I did very much see the original Broadway production of Jesus Christ Superstar. I'm sure I've discussed it. We did you like actually, it? Well, I'll get to that in a minute. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's just I can't wait, Michael. <laughs> Go on. Um, we talked about it a little last week because I had just recently learned that Grover Dale was originally going to choreograph it. Hmm. And I had completely forgotten that then there was a complete change in personnel. He didn't actually mention who the original director was, and I forgot to look it up. He said, and he said the person who was going to direct it was in a, I think he said it was in a car accident. Hmm. Isn't that what he said? And so there was a change to Tom O'Horgan, who was famous or infamous for um, uh, hair directing hair and then apparently it became something very very different and tom didn't even want to meet with grover uh to even discuss what he was planning to do because apparently tom wanted to do his own choreography um i don't specifically remember much of the choreography except i seem to remember um at the top of the show there was some kind of a wall up on stage as i recall and then the and the wall started to move slowly backwards to the floor of the stage, and there were people climbing all over it. That was actually quite effective, as I recall. Um, but uh, the production, the show and the production were extremely controversial in their day. Uh, when you look back at it now, <laughs> if you just listen to the album, the concept album, uh, you know, I, I've always thought it's very, very open-ended as to, uh, th I mean, the fact that G Judas at, at some points says that Christ is not the Son of God, and I, I'm sure that's the bone of contention. Uh, but just because he says that doesn't mean that just because he says he thinks that doesn't mean it's true, first of all. And then again, as I've said before, I have always thought there's this moment that I think people miss. At the end, uh, right before Judas's death, I think we're supposed to really believe that he suddenly realizes that he was wrong and that Christ is the son of God because he said, oh my God, he says, oh my God, I've been tricked, I've been used, and you knew all the time. And then also he comes back at the very, very end of the show and sings Jesus Christ Superstar, which has lyrics like, um, uh, why did you choose such a backward time and such a strange land? If you come today, you could have reached a whole nation. Israel in 4 BC had no mass communication. Well, why would he be singing that to someone who he still thinks is not the son of God? Right? Mm -hmm. So I really think that that's what's supposed to be happening um, uh, for Judas at the end of Superstar. And it seems to me that lots and lots of people ha have missed it and continue to miss it. I, I don't... I, I should ask, <laughs> see if I can ask that question of Tim Rice or Andrew Lloyd Webber, because I'd really like to know. But anyway, um, I frequently said that I prefer, uh, vastly prefer Webber's earlier work with Tim Rice uh, to 
anything he wrote thereafter. And uh, the earlier shows very, very, very much more so. Um, partly uh, because I just think they're better. And I think that, that uh, Rice, for all his, you know, for all his limitations, is generally speaking a far better lyricist and a far better theatrical lyricist um, than the others, most of the others that Weber has worked with. Uh, there's also the issue that, um, you know, uh, many people have noted many instances where Weber melodies are similar, uh, shall we say, to melodies that have been written by previous composers. And that seemed to uh, happen more as the years went by. Um, there's, I think the only one in Superstar that I've heard identified is that I don't know how to love him is uh, a, a few, a little bit of that is similar to a, a melody by Mendelssohn. And uh, then in Evita, there are one or two brief moments, but I don't think there are any in Joseph. And And the two songs I'd like to talk about uh, today are are both from Joseph. Um, uh, Close every door and any dream will do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, two really really beautiful songs, both sung by the title character. Uh, Close every door is happens where Joseph has been uh, seemingly caught in flagrante delicto with uh, Potiphar's wife, and so therefore is thrown into a dungeon uh, in you know solitary confinement, basically. And he sings this very beautiful song, Close Every Door. And um, I'm not uh, the, the, the greatest when it comes to musical analysis. There are some people I know, uh, and I'm sure you, you all do too, who do that almost for a living, and they do it so brilliantly. And it's fascinating. Uh, to hear them, t- those people talk, because I, I, I know enough about music to appreciate uh, the way they analyze, the way the music goes with the lyrics and the way the melodies fall and, and the way the intervals are constructed and all of that. But Close Every Door is, is really, if you look at it, um, it's, it's quite beautiful and brilliant. Here he is in this, in this dungeon, shut away, and he sings the melody. Close every door to me. Hide all the world from me. And then he repeats, do what you want with me. And it's just like a kind of a, it gives the impression of being contained because it keeps going, repeating, and keeps circling back the melody. And then it, uh, in the bridge, it starts to go a little higher, but then it goes back down again. And then at the very, very end, uh, at the very end, he sings, uh, uh, Children of Israel are never alone, for we know we shall find our own peace of mind, for we have been promised a land of our own. And he finally goes up to that note, uh, and it is gives you the impression of how he's thinking of escape and it gives you the feeling of him getting out of there eventually and holding out the hope that he'll do so so that's a wonderful moment and any dream will do is just a very very touching song about um about hope also and uh and hold, holding out uh hope for for something wonderful and, and retaining dreams, even in very, very difficult times. Um, it's, it's a, it, it's, it carries a lot of emotional weight at, at the end of the show, 
uh, when you when you see it sung in context, see and hear it sung in context because of all that is jo that Joseph has been through during the show, uh, some some really bad stuff, and then also his um, estrangement from his brothers and eventually his reconciliation with them. So those are two two songs from the same show sung by the same character that I really love. I was so. Uh, delighted when not too long ago uh, I did a show at 54 Below, Fine Science 54 Below, called 54 Loves Cast Albums, and we got Bill Hutton from the original Off-Broadway and Broadway cast of Joseph to come and sing both of those songs uh, just beautifully and in the original keys. Uh, so, and, and it was, I could tell from the audience response that it was uh, a highlight of the show as far as they were concerned as well, both both songs were amazing, uh, especially um, especially Any Dream Will Do, because what we did was we had Bill start singing it by himself with just piano, but then we brought in the cast album about halfway through, and he sang the end uh. of it with the cast album in the same key and with the, with the piano playing along as well with Michael Levine at the piano. And the audience just went I mean, absolutely bonkers. <laughs> mm -hmm. So that was a that was a beautiful moment, and I think um, represents one of the best moments of Andrew Lloyd Webber's career. Something very interesting about uh, Joseph is the, the the beginning of the genesis, if you will, of Joseph uh, having been uh, a project when you know Tim Rice and Andrew Lloyd Webber were so young. Mm. Oh they, God! Yeah, was uh, was it a high school project or was it? Uh, uh, yes, a school, some kind of secondary. I uh, forget what they call them. There, yeah, uh, school. Right, right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, but they were in their teens when they wrote this, uh, and uh, the the Joseph thing, uh, you know, was it, it just goes to show you that uh, you, you know it, this is not a. You don't have to be somebody who is, uh, you know, well experienced in in music and verse to really uh, be able to capture lightning in a bottle. Oh well, there's uh, a lot to be said for talent. Yeah, there's a lot to be said for youthful inspiration, and it does vary. It's interesting to see how. Um, some people uh, seem to have done their their best work when they were very young mm. and starting out. Um, Others maybe not. Maybe maybe they they actually improve and and get better uh, as they go along. But uh, I, I guess it really really does depend on the person. Mm, of course, Jesus Christ Superstar, such an effective show. Opened at the Mark Hellinger was so good that the Hellinger became a church. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, <laughs> so, exactly. So when uh, I mentioned earlier how controversial it was, and uh, it sure there were was. The, the aspects I mentioned of the of the show itself, and Judas is insisting for a long time anyway that that uh, Jesus is not the Son of God. But also, I think um, I I think it's very fair to say that the production that Tom O'Horgan presided over just really ramped up the um the uh controversy because it was extremely over the top uh some would say vulgar i remember um rex reed <laughs> uh on tv uh some tv show giving a, a review of it someone asked him about 
uh, superstar. And he said, oh, I think it's the bi- biggest piece of crap I've ever seen in my life. Uh, I'm pretty sure that was the exact word. It was crap or garbage, something, mm-hmm. something really, really, really <laughs> explicit like that. And uh, the audience applauded, you know, I mean, probably, probably none of them having seen it, but just from what they had read about and, and uh, related to that, I, uh, I was, so I was what, 13 or 14 then uh, I was still going through my parents to get tickets when I would l- like to see something. And I mentioned to my father that I would really like to see it. And he said, well, I don't know about that. He said, uh, uh, we're going to have to see about that because from uh, right, he said, from what I hear, it's a mockery. Mm, and mm. I said, well, I, I, you know, I, I, I don't, that's not how I, <laughs> you know, interpret the record, but, but I, I don't know. So I did it. I've, fortunately, I guess he relented <laughs> and I got to see it. So I've always been a very big fan of Andrew Lloyd Webber and uh, both of you might not know this. But here's a little uh, Broadway Radio trivia. When uh. Matthew Murray came to me and said, let's do a podcast, uh, you know, talking about reviews and things like that, I originally said, uh, we can call it Tell Me on a Sunday. Uh-huh. And Matthew said, I'll quit. I won't do it. So, <laughs> so there's still time because Matthew did quit. So as a result, yeah, we, can, <laughs> we can do it. <laughs> So, I think that's yeah. terrific, by the way. <laughs> so, Tell Me on a Sunday was uh, my first thought of the name for This Week on Broadway. Wow. Uh, wow. I so. like it. <laughs> what else could you call it? Sunday kind of love? <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes when we rev- review things, it could be called Sunday Bloody Sunday. So, yeah, that's uh, true, too. <laughs> ain't it? Yeah. So, so the next... Uh, Next person we're going to talk about is Stephen Schwartz. So, Michael, you gave us this great video from Stephen Schwartz uh, performing Beautiful City. So, tell us about this. Yes, you uh, please watch the video. Uh, it's it's wonderful. I um, well, uh, but let me just describe it briefly. It's uh, I think it's from twenty twelve, and Stephen is talking about the. Um, the genesis or the or the uh, transformation of beautiful city uh from godspell uh it was originally written as a a, a very very joyous joyous celebratory uptune and it's not on the original cast album i don't believe it was in the, i'm not sure no, if it was it was written for the movie uh, well, okay, I thought so. Yeah, I, I wasn't sure if maybe it had been written at some point before that and added to the show, but we know it's in the movie. And uh, there, there, as I said, it's it's presented um, as a as a very celebratory number as the uh, as the as Jesus and the clowns are walking through <laughs> an empty New York City. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that, that is their playground basically. Uh, then, um, I had forgotten the specific, the specifics, but in, in this video, Stephen details it, that he first rewrote the song after the LA riots. Uh, there were LA riots some years ago. I didn't look up the date, um, because he wanted to, you know, uh, address that and so he rewrote the song as a much more um wistful uh sadder uh still hopeful but but um bittersweet sadder kind of a song that starts um 
well, the original version starts out, out uh, come sing me sweet rejoicing, come sing me love. We're not afraid of voicing all the things we're dreaming of. But the, the rewritten version starts um, out of the ruins and rubble, out of the smoke, um, out of our night of darkness. Uh, can we see a ray of hope? Uh, so that is, was very different and reflected that. Um, then after 9 11, that the new version seemed very, very, very appropriate. The, the lyrics of the new version seemed extremely appropriate to that. And Stephen began to perform it at benefits, uh, 9-11 benefits and, and things of that sort. And that was tremendously moving. And now um, I, did, I didn't actually catch it. I looked it up. I'm not sure if it's archived anywhere. But I believe that just last week or so, he did yet another video performance of it in in the context of the tremendous tragedy that we're undergoing right now. So it's, uh, uh, I suppose both versions of the song are, are appropriate to various contexts, but the new one is certainly appropriate to what we have now. And it's a gorgeous, gorgeous song. It's also, um, uh, a sign of brilliance in that it works equally as well as an uptune, a joyous, happy uptune, or a much sadder, more contemplative tune. Um, just by slowing it down and uh, perhaps changing the, the uh, maybe changing the harmonies a little bit uh, and just giving it a whole different feel in the performance. So that is um, a, a, that song alone, uh, which which is in the news, you know, is is in the in my mind right now for those reasons, is a, I think a perfect distillation of Stephen Schwartz's gifts. Um, uh, another song I would mention of the the what he's probably written hundreds. He's probably written hundreds. Uh, uh, is gifts of love from the baker's wife. Uh. What a song. Oh, God, yeah, which uh, yeah. Um, a, a friend of mine introduced me to many years ago after I had uh, already, I guess at that point, come to know both Godspell and Pippin very well, but had not yet even heard of The Baker's Wife. Um, for obvious reasons, it was a flop that, that never even got to Broadway. Uh, but um, there is a recording that I believe Stephen himself financed of uh, – some songs from the show with Patti Lapone and Kurt Peterson and Paul Sorvino um, and Terry Ralston. Uh, and it's a beautiful, beautiful recording, even though it represents only a small fraction of the score. I think it actually represents the best part of the score. Um, the ballads uh, and the romantic songs are just in ineffably beautiful. And that one is amazing. It's a, it's a, um, I don't know if you would uh, describe it as a conditional love song. It's a very unique song about um, a uh, woman who is not really in love with her her much older husband, but she realizes that he loves her so much that she uh, she is gladly accepting his gifts of love, and. Um, What's interesting about that is that uh, as 
has frequently happened with Stephen, um, he has rewritten those lyrics. Um, they were rewritten uh, in later years to give a slightly different tone to the lyrics. Um, so you might want to listen to different versions of that and compare them and see how he, um, you know, his his second thoughts, I guess you would say, mm-hmm. on that song. I, I, it's always um, fascinated me how many of his songs he's rewritten. Uh, and in almost every case, I think, uh, in almost every case, generally speaking, I would say that the two versions are, equally good uh in their own way it's they're just different uh so that's fascinating i can't think of anyone else anyone else who's who's done that to the extent that he has and that um maybe marks him as unique or almost unique uh in my book in fact my favorite song um of all that he's written it's an art from working um, is, is one that he also rewrote. I remember when it was done at Long Wharf uh, some mm-hmm. years later that there were new lyrics for uh, for that song as well. Um, what I love most about Stephen Schwartz um, has very little to do with uh, as magnificent a songwriter as he is, and he is. Um, but what I remember most was when I was interviewing him and Charles Strauss and Joe Stein um, for a production of Rags. And um, Joe Stein was mentioning that his daughter was interested in going into um, playwriting. And at that point, Charles Strauss went, oh, you know, and they all do. They all do that. When, whenever they talk about their kids going into show business, they all go, oh, you know, as if to say, oh, I don't want that for my kid. Oh, my God, it's so hard, you know, so <laughs> on and so forth. And Stephen Schwartz, after hearing the, oh, said, oh, I don't know. It's been very good to us. And I thought that was great. I thought that was great. You know, I mean, because so many people have such a negative view of it. And yet he had to admit, was thrilled to admit, and uh, that indeed it had been very good. And who could argue with that? And of course, there were many fallow years in terms of Broadway, um, because after those three major hits, major, as I said last week, even the magic show wound up being at the time the ninth longest (laughs) running Broadway book musical of Mm. all time. You know, of course, it's been eclipsed, but nevertheless, that's really amazing. The three spectacular hits, Godspell, Pippin, and um, and The Magic Show, little did we know that Wicked would outrun all three of them put together. Mm. But um, anyway, but the point is there were those fallow years because there was the baker's wife closing on a town. There was working, which lasted about a month or so. I mean, really, um, rags, four, four or five performances, something like that. And who knew that his biggest success was coming? And uh, it was really quite something. I remember vividly, I remember exactly where I saw the movie. I remember where I was sitting when I saw the movie. It made such an impression on me when um, I saw the Godspell movie because We Beseech Me is my favorite song from the score. And when it didn't come, mm. oh, my God, how could you drop that song? And as time, as the song is progressing, Beautiful City, I'm saying, but, but this is a good song, too. And I'm very glad that Godspell now, now, most productions include both songs, you know, something for everybody. I think that's really quite great and uh, uh, very, very effective, but good Lord. um, You know, uh, just, just a magnificent, magnificent songwriter. And I do think that um, 
Children of Eden is terrific work as well, even though Broadway has never seen it. Uh, I've been very fortunate to see the original London production, um, as as well as the Paper Mill production, which um, got us a two CD set, which was really necessary because I don't know about you, but if your Children of Eden CD from London works, you're a lucky person. <laughs> Most of them don't anymore. Something went wrong with all of them, and uh, and uh, that's too bad because uh, that original production had some very nice performances on it. So, so I am very grateful for Stephen Schwartz, who uh, who certainly is a very nice guy too. Uh, oh God, yes, yeah, yeah, he really is, and um, you know, I know that he has been such a champion of young writers. He for years um, he has been running the uh, ASCAP workshop, and I know that he gets no money for that. Yeah, uh, ironically, <laughs> um, I uh, I do a, 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 a an evaluation with ASCAP every year. I I'm, um, give out money to songwriters uh, ranging from a hundred dollars to $7,000. Uh, and um, it's an awards program that ASCAP started and Michael Kirker runs it. And um, <laughs> when we go into the office, he says to his secretary, hold all calls except for the two Stevens. <laughs> <laughs> I should just go without saying, <laughs> you know, I, I would say um, to our listeners, if you think you can handle it emotionally, uh, this might be a, a, a wonderful, cathartic time to watch the film of Godspell because, mm. um, well, I mean, you know, for fair warning, it's, it starts the very first shot or almost the very first shot is of the World Trade Center. Um, then later on, there's a number mm -hmm. that's performed mm -hmm. hardly on top of the World mm -hmm. Trade Center mm -hmm. before it had actually opened, mm -hmm. which is incredible. And then, but as I mentioned, and I'm sure many of our listeners know, the bulk of it takes place in a New York that seems to be empty, except for these 12 or 13 people. Um, and they're just in various locations all around it. Uh, but then um, at the end, it's, it's, it's very well done. There's a, it's a thrilling shot at the end where they, um, Jesus has just died uh, and they are bearing his body through the streets and New York is still empty and they get to a, a, a street corner. I think it's maybe somewhere on Madison Avenue and you can't see anyone else. And they, they turn the corner and uh, sort of disappear and we don't see them. And then the camera moves so that it itself moves around to look around the corner and down the Avenue. And we see hundreds and hundreds of people walking up the avenue as if it's a, a normal day and everyone's back in the city. So needless to say, um, I think that would carry a tremendous amount of emotional weight right now. Uh, and that's something that you might want to watch if my, if my description of it um, sounds to you like it would be cathartic rather than just too much to take. So let's talk about uh, John Kander now. Uh, I, I just don't know what to say because, uh. I mean, hundreds of credits, hundreds mm. between <laughs> between IBDB and IMDB and Grammy Awards and everything uh, from Gypsy to Irma LaDuce. To a family yeah, well, affair doing, to cabaret. Uh, dance music uh, for those two, yeah. And, of course, I don't know if you remember, um, James, but when um, we interviewed him, I asked him, what was it like 
to be at the recording section of Gypsy, you know, <laughs> given that you did the dance arrangements <laughs> and uh, was the rehearsal pianist. And he said, I was sick that day. I couldn't go, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God he hasn't been too sick to write Broadway musicals because uh, we're very lucky that he did. Um, I saw the tryout of his uh, first one um, at the Colonial in Boston, Floor of the Red Menace, um, which was such an odd show. And when you look back on it now, really, you can, again, see everybody has to go through stages like that. So many of the song choices were so weird. A, a guy singing with marbles in his mouth. I mean that literally. Um, a, 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 a song, Knock Knock, uh, based on Knock Knock jokes. Um, a, a, a parody of a Western song, Palomino Pal. A lot of strange choices. and uh, And yet... I could take you to the spot where Liza Minnelli sang A Quiet Thing for the first time. Um, and it was so amazing to hear that beautiful ballad. And you knew that you were um, in the middle of something great. And, of course, something great came later for the very next show, which was Cabaret, which was such an audacious show for its time. And um, and that's the first time we really got a true hint of something that John Cantor always poo-poos that he does, and that is the vamp. Um, he's known for that. And he's, yeah, I don't know what you're talking about, really. I mean, I, I just start these songs. And yeah, yeah, but I mean, really, think how many vamps that we know, um, be it from the vamp of Vilcomen to the vamp of New York, mm, New York. Uh, yeah. uh, by the way, for those who don't know what I mean, I'm talking about the, the introductory melody before you get to the actual song, the first notes you hear in the song. So, and it's true of Life Is, the opening song of Zorba, again, a distinctive vamp. And um, more to the point in terms of Zorba, um, more people have um, than I have mentioned the fact that you listen to Ilya Darling, a musical set in Greece, Zorba's set in Greece, and Ilya hmm. Darling was written by a genuine Greek, Manos Hadjadakis, hmm. and, uh, and Zorba was written by a guy from Kansas City, Missouri. <laughs> and yet, and yet, somehow, I'm, and again, I may be dead wrong on this because, you know, I, uh, what do I know about um, Greek music? But somehow, Kansas' music si- seems more authentically Greek to me than Manos Hadjadakis' music. Um, and he's the real thing. So um, that's, and you know, Kander always talks about the fact that he does his homework. If, whatever show he's going to be working on, he listens to the songs from that era or that country. That's something he does. And I think that's really quite wonderful because he really wants to get the specific sound, you know? And um, so, and boy, you know, he and Fred, if it weren't for these two, really would Liza Minnelli have had the career she has? I mean, there's so many things that she has done that, including of course, New York, New York, but, but also um, a musical built around her, the act, which has a lot of wonderful songs in it. Wonderful songs. The show doesn't get a good reputation because indeed, um, no question, she missed a lot of performances. And, and it is, when you talk about star vehicles, um, this is one. She, there are only two songs in which she's not involved. In fact, one song really, and it's reprised. The leading man of the show never sang a note. And it was all uh, her. And of course, she was going through a tough time um, emotionally, physically, and um, another of other um, words we could use too. But it really is um, quality work. If you listen to the album, it really has, um, um, it's the strangest thing. It's a great idea for a song, but the melody is so wonderful. And 
that's that was really so great. E- even though he doesn't stand by Woman of the Year, there were certainly uh, wonderful things in Woman of the Year. And I don't, I imagine Fred Ebb's lyric came first for "The Grass Is Always Greener," but that's that's a unique song. Well, maybe it isn't because <laughs> then they did the Rink. It is a song very much like it called "The Apple Doesn't Fall," but. Given a lyric like that, to be able to put such um, fascinating melody to it is really, you know, quite something. And isn't it wonderful that, you know, Lord knows, I mean, I'm not counting, I'm not looking at his bank book, but Lord knows he must not need the money to continue working at this advanced stage. But well into his 80s, even after his longtime collaborator died, and certainly uh, the longest running collaboration in musical theater history, by the way, um, mm. that you would think he'd say, well, that's it. I, I can't work without Fred, you know, but, and yet look what happened. Look what happened. He, he took on a new guy and uh, they've written a few shows together. So it really is quite wonderful to, to uh, go back in that career that started off so much like a quiet thing in the sense <laughs> that this flop that lasted, I think 87 performances, you know, who would think that um, from that show you would get a composer who would turn out to be, um, really close to a household name. Hmm. Michael, how about you? Well, thank you for mentioning A Quiet Thing a few times because that was the song that I primarily wanted to talk about. <laughs> um, but first of all, before I start, let me also say we're celebrating March birthdays, but I just looked it up and uh, Fred Ebb's birthday is April 8th. Uh-huh. So we're coming up to that. So it's it's really great that we can uh, celebrate both of those amazing gentlemen. Uh, Which means that they're of the same astrological sign. That's interesting. Who knows? You know, as as Harold Rome once wrote, it's kind of fun to half believe it. So anyway, go on. <laughs> when we did have the privilege of speaking with John Kander on our podcast several years ago, I, I do remember, and I think I mentioned this before, that at one point I talked about the pastiche uh, aspect, and it seemed to me that maybe he reacted somewhat negatively to that word uh, because I think it does have, for some people, I think it does have a negative connotation, but I wanted to say again, I absolutely do not, did not mean it that way. And it does not have a negative connotation for me. I think that he wrote pastiche songs when they were appropriate and he wrote mm-hmm. them better than anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I don't, I, I guess that would apply to uh, what Peter said earlier about um, imitating Greek style music. Uh, I, I, I think that fault would fall under pastiche, but also, of course, famously, uh, uh, the uh, music that's written in a specific style for period shows like most of them, <laughs> uh, Chicago and Cabaret, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but certainly, uh, Mr. Canner and Mr. Ebb could write brilliant, beautiful, amazing songs that were not pastiche at all. And A Quiet Thing is a perfect example of that. Um, I was thinking that song recently, it came up in a discussion uh, of, as I said earlier, songs that can work in a completely different way out of context, but equally as well as in context. Uh, I'm I first heard A Quiet Thing out of context before I knew Flora the Red Menace, before I had the album, uh, before I knew what it was. And I just assumed that Liza <laughs> or whoever was singing about um, experiencing love for the first time. Uh, it certainly, I think, 
can be interpreted that way. Sure. When she, when she, what she finally says at the end is happiness comes in on tiptoe. But uh, and what she's actually singing about is getting a job. <laughs> but the but the melody is so lovely and so beautiful and so romantic and the lyrics and the imagery uh, are such that I think it can absolutely be interpreted as singing about falling in love for the first time and, and having the emotion not be precisely what one pictured. I mentioned um, uh, the, because in our discussion, because it was actually started with uh, talking about songs from Mame and specifically if he walked into my life which of course is in context is about a uh, a woman singing about and uh, being suddenly estranged from her nephew but uh when Edie Gourmet sang it <laughs> you know for example mm -hmm. it it certainly did not seem uh that that's what it was about it seemed about uh, the breakup of a romantic relationship and uh and uh when you think about it the 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 of course the nephew uh specific lyrics such as they are there are very few of them but are just in that very very brief um introductory section where's that boy with the bugle my little love who was always my big romance but then once she goes into did he need a stronger hand did he need a lighter touch it's not so um very very similar to a quiet thing uh which mm -hmm. is a wonderful 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 song and another <laughs> another song that that bears a resemblance to is um in a way is there won't be trumpets the sondheim song from anyone can whistle and in fact uh years after it was recorded we we became aware that barbara streisand had recorded those two songs as a mini medley or a little melding uh or whatever you want to call it uh because it's about um you know whether it is romantic love or uh, waiting for a hero or getting a job it's about how sometimes uh, joy and happiness can be quiet rather than uh exploding fireworks or uh, or hearing a band march down the street or, uh seeing shooting stars things like that um so these are songs that are that that just work on every level and um and I wanted to end with Cabaret, which is something that uh, it seems to me that it comes up so frequently on our podcast because it really is one of the absolute all-time unquestionable masterpieces mm -hmm. of the musical theater. Um, I just uh, one, one of the other things I've watched in quarantine is um, I got to see a, a private video of a production of Cabaret that was done just a month or two ago uh, by Ghostlight Productions on Staten Island, a wonderful new company. I had missed it live. I almost made it there, but I, I didn't, and I regretted it. So I was happy that they got the whole thing in a, in a very well-done video. But I marveled again at uh, – this is, of course, the, um, the revised version, the Sam Mendes – uh, slash Rob Marshall version, if you will, uh, that was done. Uh, well, it was first done at the Donmar warehouse, but then further revised uh, uh, when it came to New York and was done by the roundabout at studio 54. Um, but both versions of cabaret um, have, and of course, then the movie is this another animal entirely, but both of the stage versions of cabaret are, are brilliant in their own way. I have, 
certain things that I like better in one or the other, but it's still genius. And to hear and, and see different people interpret the lyrics um, the, and the music and the songs uh, and the book, uh, the brilliant Joe Masteroff book in, in different ways is amazing. Just to um, little nuances that an actress can bring to the titled song, for example, that that really can just tiny little things that can make every performance a little different and unique in its own way. And um, I definitely got that from this show, which was was wonderful overall. But also, um, there was a line uh, towards the end that uh, my friend Qu- Craig Kwasnicki as the MC did in a way that I'd never heard before. Um, uh, after everything has happened, the MC comes out and says uh, something like, ladies and gentlemen, where are your troubles now? I told you so. And then the next line is, we have no troubles here. Here, life is beautiful. What he did that I have never seen anyone do before is he read those lines in a very, very menacing dangerous tone of voice he was we have no troubles here here life is beautiful and uh i don't think it's the only way to do it i i wouldn't even say it's the quote-unquote best way to do it but it just sent chills up my spine Mm. uh and i actually asked him about it i i congratulated craig on that and he said i can't take credit for that that was the director Hmm. who told me, who, who suggested I do it that way. Uh, so whosever I did was um, Cabaret is full, full, full of that. And it's all about the the incredible brilliance of Kander and Ebb and Joe Masteroff. And of course, Hal Prince, who originally had the whole concept and put the whole thing together. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, I also uh, want to point out that um, given that we're talking about these people, it occurred to me while we were talking about um, the, uh, the cabaret that there was a show um, about 15 years ago or so called The Musical of Musicals. <laughs> the musical. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Joanne Bogart, um, Eric Rockwell uh, did it. Um, she wrote, uh, they both wrote the book. Um, Eric Rockwell wrote the music and Joanne Bogart wrote the lyrics. And they, brilliantly parodied Sondheim, Lloyd Webber, and Kander. They didn't do Schwartz, um, but nevertheless, they did it. And that's an album worth checking out, uh, I have to say, because I really think that um, this Eric Rockwell is magnificent at um, aping and uh, coming up with melodies that are damn good on their own. Frankly, and I hate to say this, um, at the end they do a song called Done, which is one from Chorus Line. <laughs> and I think I may like Dunn, um, Dunn's melody more than I like One's melody. Wow. So um, anyway, but the, um, the parody of Will Coleman uh, is so spectacular. And it's the guy who plays Joel Gray. I don't know his name, but um, magnificent in, in aping uh, him. But uh, this is one that you might want to try to get um, uh, while we're all staying inside, uh, because I think it'll bring you uh, a lot of fun and pleasure. Um, Yes. All right. 
Okay, so that wraps it up for this week. Before we say goodbye, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, or Tell Me on a Sunday, you can automatically <laughs> download it to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to listen to us. iHeartRadio plays us. Tune in, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you can listen to finer podcasts. You can find Broadway Radio's offerings. Matt and Ashley are doing tons of work on Today on Broadway, aside from the Monday for Monday through Friday show. There's a lot of uh, individual shows that are coming out uh, as well, with different interviews of people doing what they do during this uh, lockdown here in New York um, and all around the nation and, in fact, all around the world. He just spoke to our friend John Schwab in London at the Curtain Call podcast as well. That is on the uh, Saturday feed if you want to go back and check that out. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found at BroadwayRadio.com in the show notes as well as some of the things we've talked about today in uh, those videos that Michael talked about. I found a Liz Calloway just put out a video singing Beautiful City as well while she's driving around Manhattan on the Upper West Side. So oh, check wonderful. That out as well. And then the Terrence McNally video uh, from the Tribeca Film Festival of just about two years ago, as Michael talked about. So uh, on behalf of Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. What's another day? Has lots of hills to climb And a hero doesn't come till the nick of a time Don't look for trumpets or whistles Tooting to guarantee Of the-